sled dog community, they're blue zones for dogs. They live very healthy lives. Many of them can run eight, nine, 10. I did a rise up into a very old age. It's quite remarkable, actually. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to this episode of Animal Tales, where we'll talk about my favorite subject, animals. The goal of this podcast is to introduce you to experts and subject matter professionals and people I've long admired who live with, care for, and actually work with animals. You'll hear the other side of the story, not from the vocal minority, the animal rights extremists, the noise, but from those who actually are experts. We're going to have a conversation about the last great race, the Iditarod. It covers 1,000 miles of territory in Alaska. It started as a life-saving measure to deliver medicine to a remote area of the tundra and has become a decades-long time-honored tradition, honoring the fortitude of the people and dogs of Alaska. Of course, the animal rights extremists want to put it out of business. They haven't seen it. They haven't enjoyed it. They've just made up their mind. Enter CEO Rob Urbach, who joined in 2019 and is taking the Iditarod to new heights. He's live streaming it for an audience who may never get to Alaska and creating an aspect of the brand that will even help you with your relationship with your pet. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Heidi. Great to be here. And, uh, you know, I'd like you to start off telling us, I know you came into this, I believe, in the last few years, taking over uh, the Iditarod company. And tell us what went into that, what was involved in that effort. Uh, yeah, sure. So I have a, a background uh, in the sports space, mostly in the mainstream worlds. Think uh, NBA, NFL, tennis, golf, Olympians, events, athletes, television, media, sponsorship. So I was uh, previously CEO also of USA Triathlon, which is the governing body of the sport, oversees 4,000 events across the country, managed Olympic programs in London and in Rio, as well as the Paralympic programs. So I had a pretty robust uh, career and early on in my career worked on athletes from, you know, Michael Jordan to Andre Agassi to, you know, well-known, you know, NFL players and numerous Olympic athletes, you know, from, from Michael Phelps uh, to skiers and snowboarders. So I had a really broad remit. So when the Iditarod opportunity uh, came around, I knew, frankly, not a lot about it. Uh, I followed the sport from afar, having sort of had a serendipitous engagement on a trip to Alaska and met somebody coming out uh, to the Iditarod and kind of was turned on. And the event really resonated with me, um, you know, having done Ironman triathlons and, you know, the, the heavy endurance space I was working in at the time. And the Iditarod is a whole nother level of the endurance world. And it also has the added benefit and complexity of dogs and dog care and yeah. animals that go into that. And the Iditarod is a pretty unique event. If your, your, your viewers or listeners are not aware, it's crosses roughly a thousand miles across the rural Alaska. So it's completely off the road system supported uh, by the Iditarod Air Force, which is a 30 plane Air Force that supports, provides safety and supplies to the race. So the journey is 
largely self-reliant between the athlete called a musher and the team of 14 dogs. So it's um, quite a unique event, iconic in the world of sled dog racing and learn more and more about the Iditarod's history and everything from a channel's uh, famous event in 1925 that occurred when they could not deliver a serum to the town of Nome up on the Bering Sea in Alaska. And the only way to get there, you certainly couldn't fly or you just, there are no roads. Then are now, you can't drive there. So the only way to do that was by sled dog teams. So heroically, a sled dog team saved the town of Nome by delivering diphtheria serum from Anchorage. And there's been movies made about that and documentaries and books yes. and Disney movies. So really the dogs are really the real heroes there and they do uh they the bulk of the work and the training that goes into that is very similar to what an Olympic athlete is trained in terms of the, the scientific training and the periodization and methodology and the, and the care is quite extraordinary. I often say, God, I, I want to come back in my next life. <laughs> uh, right. I'll get that concierge level healthcare. I'll be super fit, super nutrition handled every day, massage, hang up with my buddies, have adventures. So it's quite an extraordinary life that they live and, and it's an honor and proud to, to be uh, to be a, the steward of the Iditarod. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. From human athletes to animal athletes, right. It's uh it's amazing. I don't think people realize uh, what that entails. I've been around animals my whole life who were performers and athletes in that way. And it's even hard for me to understand this level. Um, and from one type of race to another in your world, right? From Ironman to uh, yeah. sled dog racing. That's pretty cool. So, you know, there, one of the reasons I did this podcast is because I come from an animal background, as you know, I'm a third generation and I, I'm passionate about my ability to have lived and worked with animals and it's getting slowly taken away from us under the guise of caring for the animals. And it's, it's all involved with emotion, ideology, and philosophy, which I know you fully understand. Um, you, I saw you speak not long ago and coming into this from a different background, I, I really enjoyed hearing your perspective about how the, what they call themselves the animal protection community, but the extremists um, approach the race and what, where they were trying to go with it or trying to get rid of it altogether and conversations you had on that front, if you wouldn't mind relaying those, that was really interesting to me. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, um, a little bit of backstory here might be important for the listeners, you know, at USA triathlon, um, when I first got there, you know, there were fatalities in the sport. You know, there was, uh, my first year, there was, uh, 14 fatalities and at the time, you know, it really wasn't studied. It was largely quiet because of perceived liability issues, insurance, et cetera. And it sounds like a lot. And, and, you know, one is too many, but it's spread across 4,000 events. And there are sure. a fair amount of sudden cardiac death in the sports world, whether it's, you know, mowing the lawn, shoveling snow up here in Alaska, that happens. But there was a, a fair amount in the triathlon space that really wasn't studied. So I put together a group of trauma people, cardiologists, you know, first responders, race directors, participants, and we studied the issue. And we did, you know, determine there was a shared responsibility and there were some commonalities in mm -hmm. details. Now, but there are risk factors largely 
people ignoring symptoms of a cardiovascular issue and being tough guys or mostly men want to do triathlons. And so we put out all this warning signs and we let every single death that happened, we did an FAA model of decided what's the one thing we could have done that would have saved that person's life. And we communicated openly. So the Iditarod, the extremists, somehow published there's been 150 deaths. This is a made up number that there has been over the years. Uh, it certainly hasn't been in the last few years, but there has. So I went through and decided, let's look at each one of those. And if there's anything we can do differently, we'll do so. And the safest place a dog can be right now is on the Iditarod Trail. The whole world of animal care uh, has dramatically changed. And our mantra is exemplary dog care. So I asked the extremists who have never been to Alaska, have never been to our vet, hey, you want to come? Come to our kennels. Let's put together a panel of independent veterinarians and let's study the race. We put out a lot of research. We've learned a lot about exercise physiology, a lot about nutrition, a lot about various elements. The sled dog community, they're blue zones for dogs. They live very healthy lives. Many of them can run eight, nine, 10. I did arise up into very old age. It's quite remarkable, actually, how healthy they are. But we want to disseminate the information for all dog owners, our, all, our different pets. But our friends on the extremist side really had very little interest in learning about this. They had very little interest in partnering. They had very little objectivity. I took what they were. They're interested in being letting dogs live longer and healthier. They had very little interest in any of those conversations. Yeah. So, you know, met with them and really learned that with their uh, objectives are and their distance to the truth is dramatic. They're highly inflammatory, grossly inaccurate. You'll see things on their website that says if an Iditarod dog is lucky enough to survive this Arctic nightmare, they'll be crippled for life. Well, if that were true, every single dog on the start line would be a rookie, which is all the good teams have almost all dogs that have been run four or five times. How can dogs are outside? Well, I look outside my window in the winter, Alaska, I see birds. It's amazing they survive. I yeah. see wolves. I see all kinds of animals that are out there. There's moose. There's caribou running around. The bears are hibernating, fortunately, during the winter, but there's a lot of animals running around there. And the point being is we all know that they're bred to be able to. In fact, the problem in Alaska is it's too warm for us now. It's yeah. getting warmer. These dogs actually perform best below zero. Anything above 20, that's why all the big moves in Zitterrod happens at night now when it's cooler. So you can't keep a sled dog inside. They want to be outside. You know, there, there's wolves out there, of course. And, you know, they, of course, have some wolf DNA in them. And so they're really bred for that. And so I think that's, you know, just a lack of education. But it just goes to, to show you the extremists have very little interest in the truth. Right. And don't even want to have a dialogue. If we can learn something from them, I was open to learning. Look, what are we doing? You know, tell us what yes. we, we can do better for dog care. Exemplary dog care is our North Star. And unfortunately, you know, they had zero little interest in that. And I think it's probably true, you know, throughout the industry. It's not really a, an interest in having any kind of you know, dialogue. Yeah. Rob, I, it, you know, it's exactly the reason I'm doing the podcast again, because I, I just want people to understand there's more to this story and um, you're highlighting that so well. We have a saying that they don't want bigger cages. They don't, they want empty cages. So nothing, whatever it is, they don't want better races. They want no races. So we could do as you guys are taking it to the best possible place 
it doesn't interest them. And you said something at the beginning of what you were just talking about that with people you did it and then you came in and did it with the animals, which I completely respect. That's I'm a generational animal girl. And I believe what we've done generationally is great, which I'm sure in Alaska, but then let's take the best of updates in science, technology, best practices, study those things. And then we've really got some, some amazing husbandry and care because the, some of the, what's getting lost are what people did great for generations, but we have to combine that with updates in what's going on. So Many kudos to you for that. That's fantastic. Um, I also have a saying there are, when I was younger and I was battling the animal extremist communities, um, I used to say there are more regulations in place for the animals in my care than my children. I had young children, but the animals in our care, we were inspected, you know, at least twice a year unannounced. If the feed can was left open, it was a big violation. I mean, so the bedding, the feed, all of that, nobody asked where my kids slept or what they ate or anything. So again, you talk about, you know, what the dogs experience, lifetime veterinary medical care, you know? So it we don't have that for the people in our world. And it's great we have it for our animals because we are their stewards. We must take care of them. This is fascinating information. And as you'll hear in every episode, I always encourage you to think about the middle. So there's the happy face emoji or the care emoji. And then there's the angry face or the sad face with a tear. Where I'd like you to be is in the middle. Be thoughtful, be curious. The emoji with the hand under his chin, the thinking emoji. That's where most of the information lies. I'm talking with CEO Rob Urbach about the last great race, the Iditarod. He's providing great detail, authenticity, and transparency about the amazing animals and the people of the Iditarod race. So now yeah. if you could tell us about what it's like, you know, for the, the dogs and the mushers and yeah, how I mean, life goes know, on. Um, so it is an everyday dynamic. You know, the, they, there's not really any vacation. There's handlers, of course. The, the mushers are very, very engaged and hands-on on a daily basis uh, with their teams. Um, the summer, there is uh, swimming training, a lot of, you know, because it's too hot for the dogs or not really out. They're running on carts and wheels, but it's the off season for them. Um, and they'll do a fair amount of swimming. It's a way to keep fit. Uh, running it, you know, early, you know, when it's dark out, because it's uh, generally going to be too warm uh, in, in Alaska for even it might be, you know, 45 degrees is really too warm for a hard workout. So right. they don't really start their season, you know, it's getting cooler. It's already pretty much fall in Alaska, right? So yeah, it's, there's snow on the ground in the high altitudes, certainly by October, November. So they'll go up north where it's even colder or in a higher in the mountain ranges where there's already snow. Sure. There's snow on the glacier. So there's some glacier training um, on snow. Oh, neat. Yeah. So there's a fair amount of that. But they're, they're really, um, you know, there's a lot of training that goes on. There's socialization with the dogs. There's integrating of the puppies into yeah. the teams. Um, the kennels are, are pretty active every day. The dogs get, you know, handled every single day. And they, you know, start to learn, um, you know, that they, they do a lot of summer tourism stuff. These are short rides with carts on wheels. Right. Uh, 
So the dogs that get picked are super excited to go. Those that don't in kennel are pretty upset. They're, they don't get to run that that, that particular instant. <laughs> yeah. They get rotated around. These are short, you know, hour long or so for some of these tours. So they're not outgoing. You know, instead of they can go 100 miles on snow all day long and do it day after day. Yeah. Um, when it's not too hot. So it's really about temperature regulation uh, for them in the summer. And, um, you know, the, to do the Diderot is a year long, you know, planning. It's, you know, the, the teams are already thinking about their strategy, thinking about their run rest ratios, experimenting with what they want to use from a nutritional basis. You know, they, they don't, they know no, they don't come in and try things during the race. They're already, you sure. know, you know, what are they, how often are they feeding and they're, they're camping out with their dogs. Um, learning who the leaders are is very important with like team chemistry, where the dogs are in the line, where they're front, back, middle, which side, who pairs with who. They're watching the gate of every single dog. So, you know, it's they're not they're not hard training till it gets colder. Right. Um, so they get a pretty good, you know, off season say, you know, April to October is they're still training to maintain right. fitness, but it's really just some base training. They're not going hard out on workouts uh, until it gets a little colder. So they're gearing up. They got a pretty long way uh, till they really start putting in the miles starting in November, December, January. They're all they're getting out there and putting in say 4,000 miles. So come to the ride with easily. They might do other races as well. Yeah. So, it's it's all about you know planning and the, the dead there's a lot of strategy there's a lot of strategy in terms of uh you, you know you know your pacing and your race plan and where you stop for rest um you know, the good teams are resting as much as they're racing so they really want to do that right and so they it's all about efficiency you know the musher will tell you that you know, the, the winter comes in is slightly under nine days and the back of the pack is 14 days, but they're, they're not, they will tell you that for nine or 10, 12 straight days, I was always thinking about what's next. There's very little downtime. Sure. The difficult part is the human because there's a lot, there's sleep deprivation. You know, they don't sleep a lot. Some people tell me, God, I slept for an hour and 47 minutes average for, you know, 10 straight days because oh, there's, boy. They're taking care of their dogs first. So you're getting, when you're stopping, you're checking all 14 dogs. You're feeding all 14 dogs. Yeah. Taking all the dogs, you know, off the line, they go to their business and that sort of thing and, you know, away from the line. And so, yeah. they're, so they're putting straw down and they're, and uh, making sure they're eating before the human eats. Uh, they have to cook the food, right? So if it's too, obviously it's frozen. So they're, 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 you know, cooking their food and, when I first started, I asked the, the mushers, like, what do you guys eat? Like cliff bars or power bars? Oh no. What? That'd be so frozen. So hard. <laughs> we can't eat that stuff. Uh-huh. So they have to, you know, understand. And it's a lot of it, the execution and, and what they're packing. And, and, you know, it's also staying emotionally connected with their dogs. You know, the good, oh, yeah. that, that relationship, you know, and how they connect emotionally is really, really important. Um, you know, the leader of the dog, the leaders are very important uh, in terms of, you know, taking charge, right. And showing the other dogs and keeping everyone in line. And, and, you know, it's just a great thing to see. I think it's building in the summer, really building the chemistry of the team. They start to think about these 20 dogs they have, they have 50 in a kennel. 
you know, the 20 on the A team, 20 on the B team, do various runs with various iterations of, of certain dogs and they're kind of in a tryout. So like what would um so they have 14 on a sled for the Iditarod? Sometimes by design, sometimes especially the puppies or the young dogs. Three-year-old might be that design, only going to go 500 miles. And right. Uh, they'll put them in the sled. They can put them in the sled all they want, and they can rest them that way, too. Oh, so yeah, sure. Easily carry two at a time in the sled. And some of them will go for a ride and come back out. Some will be returned. Uh, our Air Force flies. We know more about flying dogs. We fly <laughs> dogs. We fly them all back from Nome and Anchorage. So we're flying a lot of dogs. Uh, we flew 812 flights, not all for dogs, last year with our planes and helicopters. So, um, you know, that's the dynamic is that, um, you know, this is another thing that our extremists say that, oh, my gosh, you know, half the, you know, about, about a third of the dogs get returned, dropped. You see the NFL players on the field, you see more on the sidelines. Well, it's by a design. They're not all right. Be there at the end. Some teams, so you know, teams are usually going to finish with about ten dogs on average. So, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. That's sort of you know. Again, it's it's some might just get frankly just do get tired and weren't really right. Weren't really so they start with more than they need, so they yeah. can actually still come in. Yeah. It, it's fascinating listening to. I could listen to it all day, and I know yeah. listeners are enjoying it because. I grew up with animals driving horses and my father, we had elephants when I was a little girl and donkeys, any kind of animals. It, I can so relate to everything you're saying. And I hope that listeners who don't relate to it are really just really taking it all in because we have our lead animals who it's, I always say it's like the quarterback on a sports team. There are the animals who really in their own communication, keep the other animals going and set the tone. They train the young animals. You know, we put yeah. our young horses in a team with the, with the elders because they're going to show them how it's done in our Liberty yeah. work in a circus. So it's really cool to me to hear you. Not that yeah. I'm surprised, but yeah, usually the retired leaders, you know, will tr you know, so leaders like 12, 13, 14. Yeah. Yeah. They, probably not going to be on the team anymore, but they'll be training the puppies. Training. Absolutely. It's, and it's amazing. So they really take their role seriously. Yeah. Right? They're pretty active. The leaders are yeah, pretty active uh, in the kennels. They know their spot. They know the way. Oh uh, yeah. You know, we had, uh, you know, we had, uh, you know, another story that's a really good story is that, you know, we had a dog escape who got dropped I and followed this story. We, yes, we got out of, we got out of uh, his collar, and you know, it was three months later, 150 miles away. That was a French dog, so only spoke French, I guess. But, but <laughs> uh, uh, you know, we scrambled planes and helicopters, and we couldn't get the dog. And we did a couple sides, and we couldn't get close. The dog was timid, and. So finally, uh, we got the dog, uh, a sighting and we got the dog in a boat. And so that's how we were able to get the dog until its owner could come over from France and get reunion. There's some great video footage and photos of the reunion of Leon yeah. was the dog. So, yeah. And so this year. I followed that story. That yeah. was a great story. Yeah. So and you guys were very that. honest oh, to your yeah. credit. You were, yeah. you were very honest and transparent with that story. And, um, I thought it was terrific because you could have made it this gone the whole emotional route or whatever, but you did a nice job with it. And I, I applaud you for that.
Yeah, so this year, to prevent that from happening again, every return dog is going to have a, a tracker. Now, it's not, people think it's, it's, it's hard, easier said than done. You can't just do a regular like RFID tracker collar because it won't work out in the tundra. Sure. <laughs> it has to be a satellite base. And they ever got rid of their car. We're doing a whole harness system. So we're putting in harnesses with the satellite tracker so we can track every dog. It's going to be really cool that I'm really looking forward to that. So, you know, that's the kind of system that we need. They can't get out of this harness and, you know, right. So Rob, how many industries go to that length because of one wasn't even a, it had a good ending to it, but the lengths that you, you folks are going to is just fantastic. And that's why I want this story to be told. It's it's expensive for us to do this, but we're going to, we've committed to doing it. And we went through a whole different analysis of the right kind of system and harness. And it was a lot of work and resources and yeah, we're, we're, we're doing it. And um, do you have any cool tech partners on that front? Yeah, we, we have, um, uh, all sorts of satellite partners uh, that awesome. we use for this, and you know everything from uh, Elon Musk's company to to uh, our GCI is our our, our called GCI here, which is the Alaskan base, and they help us basically buy our own satellite time uh, for this. Wow! So we essentially have a satellite that we use uh, for this process. I don't, I'm not uh, on the front end of that technology. Right. We can't address what it. a neat process. I'm sure yeah, the techs yeah. enjoyed that, huh? Yeah, you've got to be able to get the signal off the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So it has to be a certain power and certain level and, you know, all that stuff. And if the dog is, you know, in, yeah, we've got a really good system. You know, a lot of times you said the dog was underneath something, you couldn't get it signal out. So we tested sure. it on signals. What a, it seems like a system that will be able to be utilized in the future for something else too, which is yeah. you know, always progress. So yeah. Yeah. We're, was this not the 50th running of the race? Am I correct on that? Yeah, it was the 50th running was, uh, was in March. So they did okay. a run at, uh, number 50, which was really, really great. Um, you know, we, we ran through COVID in 20 and 21, um, you know, we spent a lot of time on that consciousness as well. I don't want to take a lot of time, but we had nine people that were tested positive. We tested every day and so that we could prevent it from passing it on to any of our communities, which I'm confident that we did. These are all people coming in town. So we had a very robust uh, testing program. Um, and hopefully, you know, I don't know, we may have it again. So Yeah. Oh, my. You're like Wyoming. I was in Wyoming during the pandemic training horses at a buffalo ranch, which was a bison ranch. But they had T-shirts made in Wyoming, socially distant since the 1800s. I would say Alaska is probably similar. Yeah, yeah. They have a little social distancing up there. Yeah, yeah. I like the, you know, it's like the same thing. You know, I I got, you know, emails from our friends friends that we were putting dogs at risk for getting COVID. And I said, well, the uh, safe place your dog could be from getting COVID is on our trail because our bubble <laughs> is really tight. We tested absolutely. Every, 18 straight days, 18 times during the race. Every day you move, you test. Every day you travel, you test. That was our policy. Wow. We really That's tested it yeah, robustly. And there's some in. logistics in that alone that are probably yeah. challenging. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's, you know, we learned, um, you know, we have such a robust veterinary network as well. Yeah. So about 500 veterinarians that have worked the Iditarod over the last 50 years. And, yeah. um, you know, they, uh, 
they do great work. They're out there at, you know, two and three in the morning. They got to get their gloves off to get their hands on the dogs. Um, and they do it. Um, and they are camping out oftentimes and they do a lot of research. We've affiliated with Oklahoma, a couple of different veterinary schools for various research projects. We do a research project every year. Uh, so we try to disseminate that and they, they write it up and they do some studies on dogs, you know, everything from metabolism to ulcers to you know, hot spots, all kinds of things that they've looked at. Every dog gets a really big, robust uh, blood work workup before the race. Sure. Yeah. Um, the whole and the full on EKG and you know, battery of tests. Usually there's one or two dogs every year that, you know, have don't pass their one of the top dogs and teams are in are scheduled to go, but we find something that's too abnormal that we do mm-hmm. in the race and we'll break, you know, it could be a heart issue. could be something or in, in, in the blood work or an organ issue. And, you know, hopefully that case, you know, we've saved that dog. So you know, there's always yeah. something that happened, you know, any, any dog population you look at. So when, after I heard you speak, I was very motivated to want to go to Alaska and, you know, experience the Iditarod. So not everybody can do that. I hope I will one day, but I know you've got some, during the race, there are ways to follow it. Tell us about that. So for people who are pumped up now and want to experience this and don't get there. Yeah, thanks. We, we, we have a, we live stream the race 24 hours a day. Um, it's called our insider network. You can find it on Diderod.com. We think it's very immersive. We, we have about eight cameras we have usually have three different uh, feeds going at once that a producer decides which feed I'm trying to get us to be able to have the consumer determine which feed that you want. Cause you watch certain aspects of the race. Oh, interesting. Huh? To follow the race statistically, we fly two planes. We fly around what's called a, a VSAT and I direct that helps us get the signal, you know, off the ground. It's generator powered satellite uplinks that we load up all the video from so it's pretty good everything from you know on sled you know dog cameras to drones to planes to six camera guys on the ground who are traveling around with snow machines so we put a lot of time and effort and investment to this to really bring i think a really immersive experience to our global fan base. So it's a subscription that we offer. And I think it's a really, really cool thing that we do. And it's yeah. about see the dogs. There's also GPS trackers on every sled. So you have that, you have the analytics, the data, you know, how fast they're going, how many dogs that they have, um, what rest that they've taken so that you could really do your own analytics and determine, you know, the dynamic of the flow of the race. Pretty good commentary. We've got, um, you know, a guy that's Greg Heister who has his own shows on ESPN Discovery, who's our lead talent. Uh, so we've done, I think, a really, we try to get better at it every year. Uh, this year, we're getting almost twice our upload speed. Occasionally, it's hard to get some of the video sure. off the so we, You know, we have technical issues because we're doing this. There's no power. There's no electricity, no internet. So we bring all that in. Yeah. Unbelievable. And yeah. that's March. Uh, the idea to ride for next year is March 1st through 7th, correct? Yeah. 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 Well, the, the back of the pack will be a little bit longer than that, right? Right. And if you, so they probably before March could start watching things get together and assembled and follow the, the progress of what's happening pre-race, I assume. You can watch, uh, we, we, we put up things like the top 10 video segments or interviews from the prior year. 
we have documentaries that we we've done every year and you can, there's endless amounts, everything from, you want to see the Northern lights in Alaska, which are these uh, yeah. amazing purple and green dancing lights. It's just looks like you can't, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's a hundred X better than fireworks. Trust me on this. Right. Really. Um, and to, you know, Buffalo running and, and to some of the amazing uh, sunrises and sunsets that you see and dog teams that are just going through heavy snow with smiles on their face and, and really, really cool stuff that we have. That's awesome. And, um, also the, are you still moving forward with the whole other aspect of the Iditarod, which is your dogs, uh, the channel that's going to incorporate more in that? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a uh, working to launch a much broader streaming channel that will provide education and entertainment and enlightenment for all dog owners and dogs as well, whether that's training, whether that's you know, dog whisperer type shows was a show on specific breeds, breed chooser tools. My dog eats grass. What I do about it. My yeah. dog barks at left-handed people with red hair. Those have a lot of things uh, in content and other dog sports, whether yeah. it's this, whether it's surfing dogs, whether it's agility, you know, we did our affiliate did a rod purchase dock dogs, which is the leading dock diving business that has a couple hundred events across the country. It's great content. It's family fun. It's Oh my gosh. People love it. It's amazing. Yeah. It's fun yeah. to watch. Yeah. Rob, what would you like to leave us with um, that you've, you've articulated yourself so well about the Iditarod and, and the, where you guys are going with the, the business model, but what, what would you leave the listener with who, has been listening to all this. It's, it's totally different than anything they've ever heard about, you know, why the Iditarod is important and why the animals our our relationship with animals is so important. Well, I, I think the, the Iditarod represents a culture and it's an iconicness, uh, not just Alaska, but you know, all Northern climbs. It was basic transportation that enabled people not just to survive, but to thrive, whether it's transportation or the healer would come by on the dog team. So we're here to honor and preserve that and yet create an example of exemplary dog care because these are the Olympic athletes uh, in the endurance space. There's nothing more efficient you know, for an endurance athlete than an Iditarod dog. And there's the opportunity to really disseminate that information to all, you want to get your dog off the, you and off the couch for a local 5k. Well, here's your training program for that. <laughs> dog is, gets too hot in the summer. You know, how do you keep your dog, you know, from not overheating? What do you do if your dog has this ailment? The Iditarods, these dogs are so critical. Uh, so we've really learned, I think, from elite care of these elite athletes. And but most important is about passion. You know, it's it's about, you know, I know there's a lot of our listeners, um, you know, we know how much dogs mean. Yes. To, and I think the overall we're trying to do in the greater dogs world is we really want to help you, you know, love your dog better. And, yeah. you, know, really, you know, we know that how important that impact is to that dog and decisions you make about how you, um, you know, how you raise your dog, you know, how you parent your dog. Yeah. Uh, and the ability to give you uh, outcomes and answers from really in-depth experience, sort of from, from everything from ask the veterinarian 
to what's worked for us and the doc dogs world that allows us to engage with, you know, all sorts of dogs that, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, bred and trained to be super athletes, basically your, yeah. your dog off, you know, that you have at home. And then we want to, you know, get you more enjoyment that more and be more enlightened and more educated. And, and, and lastly, more entertained. You know, a lot of this we do is also, um, is also entertainment, but first yeah. and foremost, it's about, you know, the passion for your dog and enabling that dog to have not only a longer life, but a better life. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I truly appreciate your being a guest and we look forward to watching the Iditarod, even if it's from our computers. Yeah. Fantastic. Suffice to say that you can care about animals, protect them and still truly enjoy them. As I always say, go see for yourself. In this case, if you can't make it to Alaska, go on the Iditarod.com and I know I will be live streaming the race in March of 2023. Well, I'm Heidi Harriet, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Animal Tales. It truly means a lot to me to tell these stories. I do hope you'll subscribe. I hope you'll rate and review us. And please share this with others who you think will enjoy this information. Hope to see you next time on Animal Tales.